welcome to the Constructor Cast, your AGC place for all the news, views, and interviews relevant to your construction business. I'm your host, Amy Hager. Today we have a panel to discuss opioids in the construction industry. Recently, the Senate passed a bipartisan measure, and back in June, the House passed a package in the response to the pressure that lawmakers have felt to find a solution to the crisis. And we'll dive more into some of the statistics and reports covering the construction industry in a minute. But before we get started, I would like each of our panelists to introduce yourself. Michelle, let's start with you. Hi, my name is Michelle Stedman. I joined the Bird Dog HR team in 2012 as the VP of Operations to ensure our Bird Dog HR clients achieve talent management success. Uh, One aspect of my role includes consulting our customers on the benefits of a safe and drug-free workplace through pre-employment and periodic drug screens. Hi, my name is Marco Carr. I am the Director of Safety Operations for Bartlett Brainerd ECOT in Connecticut. We are a general contractor and construction manager. Uh, I have been involved in construction safety since 1989. Uh, have traveled the country and worked with various contractors, large and small, on various safety issues and training uh, over these past 30 years. Hi, my name is Chris Trahan Kane. I'm the director of safety and health for North America's Building Trades Unions, or NABTU. I'm also the executive director of a NABTU-sponsored nonprofit called CPWR, the Center for Construction Research and Training. Hi, my name is Jill Manzo, and I am the Midwest researcher at the Midwest Economic Policy Institute, which is a small nonprofit. I specialize in infrastructure investment, education, health policy, and inequality. In February, I co-authored a study on the opioid epidemic in construction where we found that the opioid epidemic costs the industry billions of dollars per year in lost productivity across the Midwest. And to kind of add on to Jill's startling statistics, according to a recent article in the Constructor magazine, federal statistics show that in 2016, 11.5 million people misused prescription opioids and 106 people died every day from an opioid-related overdose. The opioid epidemic has cost the U.S. economy $504 billion in 2015. And as Jill mentioned, um, she co-authored the report addressing the opioid epidemic among Midwest construction workers, and it was released back in February 2018. And that report found that injury rate for construction workers is 77% higher than the national average for other occupations. And in in addition, an estimated 15% of construction workers have a substance abuse disorder compared to the national average of 8.6. So Jill, did the research shine any light on workers' compensation claims that involve opioid prescriptions? Yes, it did. In recent years, most workers' compensation claims have involved opioid prescriptions, especially in the Midwest. For example, between 2009 and 2010, 80% of workers' compensation claims in Wisconsin involved prescription painkillers such as opioids. The share of workers' compensation claims involving opioids was as high as 60 to 80% across the Midwest in recent years. Um, Did any of your research explain why that number has gone up in recent years? So we didn't specifically look at why the number has gone up in recent years. Although we do know that doctors have increased opioid prescriptions in the last decade, a great deal of the opioid epidemic is 
due to economic stagnation and formerly good-paying manufacturing and energy jobs that have been lost, causing a general sense of hopelessness and anxiety in many areas. Mm-hmm. And this economic hardship started the problem, but then the overprescription for chronic pain by doctors, especially in the Rust Belt, increased both availability, dependence, and ultimately fatalities. In Ohio, for example, Mm -hmm. we find that 380 construction workers died from opioid overdoses in 2015 alone. Oh, wow. Yeah. Since more research and reporting has been done to understand the harms of opioid reliance, doctors have started to limit prescription. So, Michelle, in your experience, how has the opioid problem impacted the worker in the construction industry, and why do you think that is? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, it's 77% higher than any other industry, and it's because um, of the manual labor that's involved. Um, Injuries, unfortunately, are going to happen with manual labor, and many of the injured workers are now being prescribed opioids, just like Jill said. Um, So the problem is, is that the workers are not being given the proper education on the risks associated with being prescribed opioids and the addiction that can come from it. Um, and then they're, like Jill said, there's a lot, you know, a feel of hopelessness to being able to um, get off of the opioids. There's a lot of times not a place that they can go. Um, they feel like there's um, a risk of losing their job if they talk about, um, you know, if they've right. gotten addicted to the opioids. So. Um, it's a really big problem, especially in the construction industry. That makes sense. And Marco, you know, you recently reported on a study that was done in Massachusetts that stated construction accounts for approximately 4% of the employed population, but nearly 25% of the overall opioid deaths in Massachusetts. I'm curious, what other statistics do you think we should be thinking about when it comes to this issue? Well, I, I think as uh, Jill and Michelle have already talked about, there's a component behind the opioid epidemic. I believe that there's a component behind it to the point that opioid addiction and opioid overdoses may be part of a larger problem. Um, you know, certainly we've got very many of the same statistics as you look from state to state and across the country. Um, you know, I think that 4% range for uh, construction employment is fairly steady across the country. Obviously, it changes based on, you know, geographics and what's happening. But, you know, beyond statistics, I think there are some risk factors that we need to be aware of that can contribute. Uh, you know, I heard the word hopelessness used twice uh, mm-hmm. already in this conversation. And there are other risk factors, you know, that come into play in the construction industry. If you think about it, you know, we have a stoic tough guy mentality throughout the industry. There's a stereotype that, you know, we're not going to talk about our issues. If you look at the rates of opioid addiction and opioid fatalities, the rates are higher for men than they are for women. Obviously, we have a much higher concentration of men in the construction industry than we do women. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can kind of extrapolate those numbers and expect more deaths. As as mentioned, you know, pain management is certainly a, a key consideration. Our rates of injury and fatality uh, in the construction industry are nearly twice that of uh, other industries. Uh, So you could expect, you know, realistically, twice the number of pain management issues that we have. 
I think we're, you know, we've been talking in our industry about shortcomings in employment and trying to get people more into the construction industry. So we're reaching out to folks like retired military. We're reaching out to folks who have similar backgrounds to, you know, management and enforcement. We're, we're hiring cops. We're hiring firefighters. We have men and women who, um, who work the night shift uh, as an EMT and then come to work the next day. And the incident rates for first responders are higher than the general population. The rates for veterans are higher than the general population. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got this kind of perfect storm behind us. It's not only a numbers issue, it's, you know, some facts behind our industry, how we work. It's a high stress environment for every single trade, everybody from management down to, um, you know, the laborer with his boots on the ground. I think all that makes sense and you bring up some good points. And I want to turn to Chris. One of the hats you wear involves chairing the NABTU task force to tackle the opioid abuse issue. And right now it's my understanding that primary prevention is one of the many focuses for the task force. What does that mean, primary prevention? So the task force adopted a public health prevention model to deal with this issue and to break up the problem into chunks that we could deal with a piece at a time. And of the prevention model we're using, we're terming primary prevention as things that reduce the incidence of worker injuries or situations that cause chronic pain in the construction workforce. And a lot of the primary prevention effort is around traditional occupational safety and health efforts things like plans and procedures and programs to reduce materials handling injuries, chronic injuries, and and raising the awareness also of opioids and what they can do, and really that they're misaligned with treatment of chronic pain. There are better chronic pain treatments than a prescription for opioids. Mm -hmm. Also in the primary prevention category, we're considering the the efforts that we need to make in destigmatizing substance use disorders and destigmatizing the issue around opioids and talking about the fact that these medicines can cause people to become addicted. And those, from the first step, those are some of the issues that the task force is tackling. Well, I kind of want to keep going forward and talking about solutions. Um, You know, I feel like there can be different perspectives on how to tackle this issue, and I'm sure there's different perspectives from our panelists. And this might provide a new idea for our listeners. So we're not saying that these suggestions or ideas are the golden rules to overcome the issue, but... I think you all have great insight on what can be done. And the one thing that pops in my head right away is, Jill, in your report, you listed a variety of ways that contractors, labor unions, and elected officials can combat opioid addiction in the construction industry. What are two that you think are important to share with us today? Sure. One would be to encourage physical therapy and anti-inflammatory medication for chronic wear and tear injuries due to construction work. Mm-hmm. Um, as Michelle and Marco have even talked about, construction work is very labor intensive and impactful to the body. Instead of initially relying on prescribed opioid medicine for a strained back or knee, 
workers' compensation systems should encourage physical therapy for pain relief first. And another recommendation is for places of employment to provide health insurance that covers substance abuse treatment. Hmm. One of the major ways to combat substance abuse is healthcare that covers treatment. Construction employers should provide health insurance for their employees that covers at least a 30-day substance abuse treatment. And in addition, workers' compensation systems should also um, cover these substance abuse treatments to help combat opioid addiction and make sure employees are healthy. That makes sense. Um, Chris, do you have anything to add on prevention or any tools that have been released by this focus group? Um, Well, first I wanted to comment on what Jill said because some of the things that she flagged as far as alternative ways to deal with chronic pain are really in line with this prevention model that we're talking about. And this is prevention of addiction following an injury on the job. And I think that's something that can be focused on by the industry and should be focused on by the industry. Um, Michelle also mentioned that there's not enough awareness out there about the the potential for addiction from prescribed opioids. And so those are some of the things that we've already got started. And we're, we've developed education materials aimed at workers, including hazard a hazard alert card on opioids, as well as a toolbox talk on the topic. And these are available for free download from CPWR's website at cpwr.com. I really am excited that there's so many free tools and tips out there. And I know, Marco, you might have a couple additional ones to add. Well, you know, I think uh, Chris hit the nail on the head. The the real key to prevention of opioid overdose related to uh, workplace injuries is not to have those injuries in the first place. And I think we can put a twist on it a little bit when we talk about prevention, not only of injuries, but of, you know, the potential for uh, addiction and and, uh, overdose is that we kind of change our focus. We stop talking so much about rules and we talk more about relationships. You know, as, as I've worked in the safety industry for 30 years, I've realized that a conversation goes a lot further than a rule does. And as we work through these issues from a mental health perspective, I find that to be more and more true. Uh, If you can engage an individual on a job site and talk to him or her about how they're doing that day and how they're feeling, um, you know, in a toolbox talk, we talk about the safety procedures for any given task. But that also becomes a great opportunity for us to do a fitness for duty evaluation. In order for us to do a fitness for duty evaluation, we have to train our supervisors to recognize the effects of intoxication. But we also have to be ready to recognize other things that can contribute to the likelihood of um, intoxication. You know, are, the, are the guys or girls working too hard? Are they working changing shifts, going from daytime to nighttime? Are they traveling? Um, each one of those are risk factors to, that contribute. And I think it's also important to remember that when you talk about opioid overdoses, we're also talking about, in many cases, addiction. Um, You know, addiction may occur before the overdose does. In some cases, the overdose happens before addiction does. But it seems we still talk in industry and in general about drug use being a choice. 
And addiction is not a choice. Addiction is a disease. And we have to be able to understand that. And I agree with Chris, we have to get over the stigma of talking about addiction or substance misuse as the, you know, go to a meeting in the basement of a church type thing that many alcoholics do um, to something that's as public as a hunger walk or a breast cancer walk or a lung cancer walk. That's a really good point, Marco. Michelle, do you have anything else to add about prevention tips? Yeah, absolutely, Marco. Those were really great points, and I think you hit it. You hit it on the head as well with the stigma behind, um, you know, a, a worker going into their supervisor's office and saying, "I have a problem." That's just not okay right now, and it a lot of times will end up in them being fired or they feel like they're going to be fired because that has been the stigma that has been put into it. So we have to change how that is being perceived by the workers when they're dealing with things like this and giving them the ability to have programs like um, the rehab program and offering that with insurance and also employee assistance programs. Um, I know a lot of companies, and I'm talking about this with our our customers, the thousands of customers that we work with in the construction industry, many, many, many of them have an employee assistance program. But if we go down and ask um, a worker, an entry-level worker that is doing a manual labor position, they have no idea that there's an employee assistance program that they could reach out to to help. However, the companies are paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to these employee assistance programs. So it's really important that um, it's being, you know, communicated and talked about all the time. And so people don't feel like they can't walk into somebody, whether it be human resources or it be the supervisor, direct manager, that they have a problem and they need help. We need workers. There's you know, a great need for workers with the skilled trades gap. And we have to be more understanding and helpful to the people in the United States to be able to fill everybody's needs. Michelle, to kind of continue with you, how do you suggest companies set and follow policies when it comes to drug use and abuse? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's important, I think, to perform those pre-employment and random drug screens, um, but also to, you know, make that well known that you're going to be doing random drug screens and the pre-employment. And also when you're doing, you know, the initial onboarding that, you know, you have paperwork in place, um, you have a policy in place that the new hire can review and has a clear understanding of what your um, what your policy is for um, drug use and abuse and it's important um, to do that because it really can serve as a deterrent deterrent if they know what the risks are associated with it so make sure you're communicating it and training your managers to continue because I know I fill out a whole bunch of paperwork on my first day and I don't even remember what I filled out (laughs) so that your your um, your managers and supervisors out there on the field are continuing to talk about those policies and everybody's aware of what's going on. Chris how about you any different takes on setting and following policies? Um, well, I, I do have a couple thoughts on that. When a worker is prescribed opioids by a physician and they have a prescription, they don't fail a drug test. Um, they can have a long-term prescription legally and develop a substance use disorder, that is a disease, and not fail a 
drug tests because they have a valid prescription for it. So as far as prevention goes, we need to think about, again, hitting this issue before someone gets their first prescription for any work-related pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to throw there because it's not the same as just doing drug screening. Um, And a drug-free workplace, a good drug-free workplace policy is important, and it should include things that support workers who do develop substance use disorders. And that, again, ties into the availability of a good employee assistance plan. Mm -hmm. There are different models of those plans that are very effective. Um, One of the things the NAB2 opioid task force is attempting to do is to identify what needs to be in your basic employee assistance plan so that when these plans are being established and revised, we can look for these supportive mechanisms that need to be in a good employee assistance plan. Marco, how about you? Do you have anything to add? Well, I've got a a couple of things. Um, One is I'd like to recognize Chris and the task force um, and a a mutual friend of ours, Kyle Zimmer, from uh, Local 478 here in Connecticut, the operating engineers. Uh, They have developed a model program, a a member assistance program or a labor assistance program that has been designed specifically around their members. And I think that's one of the things that we as an industry need to be able to do. Many times, and I think, Chris, you've probably seen this with EAP development as well, is that many times we rely on our insurance providers or a third party to provide EAP assistance. And when we call them, they don't understand what it means to say that I was carrying a bundle of shingles up a roof and I tore my my rotator cuff. So having an EAP that speaks the same language, um, I think is really important uh, so that our guys and girls can feel more comfortable about reaching out. It can be uncomfortable calling an insurance company and speaking to somebody who doesn't quote unquote speak your language. The more trade relationships we can we can discuss, I think, are important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to go back to the, the conversation about policies and programs. I think we also need to look at the higher level beyond policies and programs, but we need to look at legislation. We need to look at the laws that apply in various states. For instance, in Connecticut, I mean, we talked about random drug screens. But in Connecticut, we can't. We're, we're barred by law from doing random drug, drug screens unless we petition uh, the state specifically for safety-sensitive uh, positions within our workplace. We need to understand what the rules are that apply on a state-by-state basis and understand how we can get involved in changing those rules and regulations to help us through So, Marco, let's bring it back down to the workers and how they can be managed. What could managers or supervisors be doing differently? So I think there's got to be that conversation between management and labor as equals sharing this problem and sharing solutions. To be a little bit more specific, I I think we need to train at a management level to recognize uh, challenges within our workforce. We need to do intoxication recognition training so that we understand how those around us may be going through some challenges in their life. Um, We need to be prepared uh, to speak to these individuals. 
And that's, you know, it's not just about training, but it's about education. Training is how to do something, but education is why to do something. We spend a lot of time training people and force feeding rules down their throats, but we need to be able to have conversations with them out in the workplace and understand the lifestyles that are applied to this daily work that we do. You know, I think one of the things we could do from a management perspective, as you know, as we talk about developing programs and procedures and we hire trainers to come in and do a 30-hour course or a 10-hour course or a fall protection competent person training course, I think there are many opportunities for us to introduce speakers from an addiction perspective, from a mental health perspective, from a suicide perspective and say, you know what, I've got this 30-hour class scheduled but I want to talk to you about health issues in the workplace. I want to spend an hour talking to you about uh, the challenges that you may have or your family may have in the workplace. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that's definitely something that I feel would be easy for a lot of companies to think about and implement. Um, Jill, do you, do you have any other tips for managers or supervisors or even, you know, talking about company owners and CEOs? Yeah, I would add that if a worker is injured, supervisors and managers can help that injured worker heal properly by placing him or her in a low-risk position where they are less likely to get more injured or injure their coworkers. And once that worker is healed, he or she can then return to their former position, whether that be more of a high-risk position. In addition, supervisors should help employees who may be addicted to opioids and should encourage them to get clean and help them with their battle for addiction. Providing other resources for employees who are addicted can help and managers can play a major role in that. Michelle, how about you? What are you seeing out there that managers and supervisors, owners and CEOs are doing? So um, I think one of the things that we haven't really talked about that's important is Narcan. It is something that you can put in your safety kits um, if somebody is having an overdose. It um, really could save somebody's life. And with these shocking numbers that we're talking about, having Narcan in the safety kit really should be no different than having an EpiPen and then training your uh, managers and supervisors on how to use Narcan because it really, it could save a lot of lives. And for those of you who don't know, Narcan is an opioid overdose antidote. I want to ask Chris to close out the panel with a few thoughts. I think there are some good things happening in regards to the opioid crisis in the construction industry. And what we've learned that's happening in some of the building trades unions are really creative good ways to address the problem. Some healthcare plans are pre-screening substance use disorder tre- treatment facilities so that it is not a one-size-fits-all. There are some very bad treatment facilities out there. So the health plans are paying attention to this and are really vetting these facilities to make sure they are good. But it's also about member assistance programs that are tailored for our industry. When you break it down, it's how do you ensure that someone who's in recovery from substance use disorder, be it opioids or some other substance, gets the kind of support they need. And that's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all level of support. Um, It could be rehabilitation centers, but it's also on the job. It's 
being able to find support for that member on the job who has a substance use disorder. Things like income loss are really important to construction workers. If they're, they're not at work, they don't get paid. Mm -hmm. Some of the folks that I've talked to have implemented national programs that are short-term disability programs where members can get paid, be they having a baby or be they in substance use treatment. So there's a lot of good things going on and there are creative things going on, but they take attention, they take commitment from leaders who understand the magnitude of this problem and are committed to helping solve it, and they take a lot of perseverance and a lot of work. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to kind of wrap up this panel. We are running out of time today. So I do want to thank everybody for helping us better understand this important issue. Chris, Jill, Marco, Michelle, you really shined some new light, I think, on this issue. And I think the big takeaway that I have is we really need to continue to talk about it and to communicate about it. So thank you guys for taking time today. I appreciate it. And I want to thank you all for listening today. This has been the AGC Constructor Cast. <laughs>